Hello and welcome to episode 28 of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. Uh, so this week uh, we're talking with John Kurlander, who is a, a mix engineer, um, probably best known for mixing the Lord of the Rings trilogy soundtrack, um, for which he won three Grammys. <laughs> so we're talking to a Grammy Award winner. Um, however, he also played a hand in recording Abbey Road album by the Beatles, obviously, <laughs> um, and McCartney won. Uh, Badfinger, uh, Red Rose Speedway, Elton John, Cliff Richard, Toto, Pete Townsend, and he's worked with uh, lots of producers such as Mickey Most, um, worked on loads of West End cast recordings as well as some sort of mainstream pop records in the you know later years mainstream pop records and also lots of well-known classical recordings which obviously isn't um, my area of expertise but yeah, some big names in that world. Um, also, I'm looking here, some video game soundtracks as well, which is pretty major. He's had a, a stupidly eclectic career. Um, so this conversation sort of documents his his path through uh, starting at Abbey Road at 16, and then he was working at Abbey Road for 30 years and uh, did a, a huge amount of this his work there, obviously, before uh, going freelance. Um Okay, I sounded very northern then, freelance, goodness gracious, right, goodness gracious, there you go, and I've balanced it out with an incredibly southern thing, right, <laughs> anyway, I've also got to tell you that I finally sorted myself out, and we have some mugs that you can buy to support the podcast, Whee! so if you're in the UK, you can buy one of these mugs for £15, uh, including postage, um, through Royal Mail, um, and then if you're overseas, the postage will probably be slightly more, but depending on how I work it out, it might might be included. I have to just double check the international postage things. Um, but if you'd like to support the podcast and uh, and sort of keep keep helping me do this, <laughs> then please go and uh, buy one of those mugs. They're beautiful enamel mugs. They're very cool. And you can get them from my website, allyouneedisdrums.com, by the time that this comes out, and it will be under shop. Uh, so go and have a look there, please. And uh, I thank you very much. I look forward to uh, receiving pictures of you with them and uh, posting them on my Instagram feed and all that kind of thing. Anyway, let's dive into the episode. Here we go. John Curlander. So I am really pleased to be joined by John Curlander um, all the way from LA. And it's it's uh, just gone 9am in LA. Is it, that's right, isn't it? Yeah, so uh, thank you for getting up early <laughs> to speak to us. Um, yeah, and thank you so much for giving us your time. It's really appreciated. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Um, so, I mean, if I'm honest, I'm, I'm looking at some notes I've got here that I've written, and I've got more notes for you than any other person I've interviewed. <laughs> your, your, your career has been, um, I mean, genuinely unbelievable. I mean, you say it, you say it that almost as an exaggeration about some people's careers, but yours has literally been just astounding. You've done so much. You've got such a huge breadth of work. Um, it's it's a it, yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, you've <laughs> in terms of just pop stuff, you know, kind of pop in inverted commas, um, you know, rock and roll. It's you've I, got. I'm sorry, just to interrupt you. Go on, go on, for it. Yeah. On that subject of it being ridiculous, what well, 
one of quite early on when I moved to LA and like getting into the film business here, uh, one very prominent composer actually turned me down because he said, I don't believe your bio. I think it's lies. <laughs> and that was the end of the conversation. Wow. Well, I mean, no, he really, it really was. It <laughs> wasn't just something. It wasn't just. I mean, he really meant it. He said, "No, I don't believe it." <laughs> that, yeah, that's that's crazy. I mean, I just spoke with Shell Talmy, and I know that he uh, he did a few. Um, he told a few lies <laughs> to get to to get to where he was. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know. Um, but yeah, I'm not accusing you of telling any lies. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's just a, uh, you know, it's. So I mean I've kind of I think in of your career in sort of three facets you've got the sort of pop and rock side of it then the um you know the sort of classical um recording mm-hmm. that you do and then um so sort of the film and uh filming gaming that kind of stuff um yeah. and I think in you know I'm, it's fair to say in each of those three categories you've got some you know a a CV that would be envied by anybody who just focuses on any one of those three right. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, I'm not expecting a response. I'm aware that I'm just sending flattery at you. <laughs> That's okay. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, I'm just just trying to get the uh, to you know the significance of what you've done. It is you know before we start delving well, into how you got there. All over. I mean, uh, I think I've always thought it's good to, you know, have uh, eggs in more than one basket. And, you know, uh, things in, in different areas. And also, I have quite a high or low boredom threshold. So <laughs> uh, it's, it's good to, to move around. And um, one of the things is that pretty early on at, at EMI, which is now Abbey Road, um, there was a great um, division between pop and classical. And uh, the the guys uh, who worked on classical were classical, and the guys who worked on pop were. And it even went down to some of the equipment in the consoles. That you know, on the early EMI Red consoles, there were plug-in modules, EQ modules, uh, and one said pop and one said classical, and everything oh, yeah. was divided. And the um, and the paperwork for the sessions, the things we used to fill in called recording sheets. Also, you, the first thing at the top left, you have to fill in pop or classical. So that's how uh, how different it was. And a lot of people, you know, after their initial um, training at Abbey Road, went one direction or the other. And I guess what you said about me is I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, to do a bit of everything. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I think that's really cool. I'm, obviously, we'll talk a talk a little bit about that as we go down. Something I want to to ask you first is on your website, you the sort your your um you describe yourself as a balance engineer. Now, uh, you you might seen this think this a, an odd question, but I mean, especially in um you know now, uh, young people growing up will think balance engineer is an odd phrase. I just wondered if you could. I, uh, if you could describe, because I mean, a mix engineer, you you imagine yeah. doing all these things that that people tell you you need to do on YouTube, and uh, actually, yeah, <laughs> I think that's that's just me being obtuse, really. Oh, <laughs> really? 
it's it go, it really does go back to the 60s and not just EMI but it, it's a 60s thing where uh, both pop or classical engineers were called balance engineers so uh, I just put the, that in as a bit of nostalgia actually realizing that most people who read it would have no idea what it means <laughs> um, but that that's just being bloody minded I, guess. <laughs> I, I personally thought it was very cool I thought I, I read it as a um yeah. yeah I definitely read it as a hark back to sort of 60s mentality of, of, of just balancing the the volumes essentially it, it is basically I mean you know back then you might have eight faders <laughs> you know um or less and um it was all about uh, balance um and you know in many ways um the you know nowadays there's so much emphasis on plugins and doing this and doing that and processing but a, a lot of what makes things sound good or bad is in the balance you know that you can hear everything that you're intended to hear that the artists are you know so and get rid of the things that you don't want people to hear and and actually maybe uh, going back to calling it balancing is um subliminally for me um part of the um you know the ethics of the job just it's rather than sort of just slamming plugins everywhere it's it's just making yeah. sure the sounds are right in the first place and and getting the you know. yeah and yeah making sure the sounds are good and that they're in relationship to each other. i mean that's what balance is all about yes you know? yeah um whereas you know you can get carried away by just like making everything as loud as possible. <laughs> um, we did actually have uh, one, one thing, first things I, I learned in the 60s. Um, uh, and this came from some, I'm not going to name them, but it came from, from pretty uh, prominent mem mentors at the time, which was basically, if you can't make it good, make it loud. <laughs> well, right, wow. <laughs> And that was that was uh, definitely. I mean, yeah, there were there was a lot of. Um, oh, I can't remember the word. Not sarcasm. Um, I can't remember. Anyway, mm. uh, what's the word that you know? Uh, we'll edit this in later if I. <laughs> um, Any, anyway, you know? Oh, it's driving me crazy now. Um, I'm terrible for it. I couldn't remember the word nostalgia the other day. But yeah. Uh, anyway, we'll <laughs> come back to that. <laughs> um, go ahead. I, yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, so essentially, I'd, I'd I'd like to go back to to the beginning, if if that's all right, and sort of work up yeah. th through to um, sort of through the early part of your career and how you ended up. I, I'll have it. I'll have um, lavished everybody with all of the things that you've done in the introduction to this. So, um, yeah, so sure. yeah, so everybody will be aware of, of what you've done yeah, and, yeah. and I'd like to sort of work up until now. Um, okay. So how uh, you came from 
a family who was in the fashion industry. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So how how did you get involved with music? How did the music take your interest? Um, I don't know. I think it was in the family. I mean, my fa- uh, my father was a great opera lover. Oh and wow! He had an incredible selection of seventy uh, eights back in the fifties, and so so we grew up with that. And you know, he would always like be playing classical music, and um, I had piano lessons from about the age of six. Um, and I, I went to, so it, it was kind of in the family, but not in the, not in the business. And I, um, through my mother's side, I had red, green, colorblind, ah. which meant that going into the fashion business wasn't really a great idea. <laughs> Although I have to say that in the sixties, uh, it didn't really matter too much because a lot of the colors were so over the top anyway. <laughs> but anyway, I thought, uh, you know, what happened is uh, I lived with my parents and grew up in the 60s in St. John's Wood, literally one block from the studios. And um, the school that I went to was two blocks on the other side of the studios. So I had about a 10 minute walk to school every day past the studios. And that was like starting in 1962, that school. Um, so, it, you know, it was just something that you would walk past and say, oh, you know, there's like 50, 60 girls standing outside <laughs> studios, what's going on in there? Um, and then when I was, 13, um, my English master from the school said, um, we need some volunteers to come to EMI Studios to um, do some crowd noises for um, a drama recording. Okay. Um, so they did quite a, a lot of, funnily enough, George Martin used to do a lot of those before he worked with the Beatles. Yeah. Anyway, he- thinking of doing Richard III like a a spoken word recording Mm -hmm. and they wanted some crowd noises. So uh, a bunch of us 13, 14 year olds went to studio two where I think the, the Beatles were all set up because they're doing help. Oh, wow. Okay. And all their stuff, as you've probably seen in photographs was set up at the far end of studio two. Mm -hmm. And then this like bunch of school kids came in and um, we said, don't go near the instruments. You just stay up <laughs> and do, do what you're told. So we did that and like tried not to touch anything, but we we're allowed to have a look around. And you, you can only imagine, like, if you're actually brought up in the 60s and here with the, you're in the room where the Beatles not only recorded, but the, their equipment is set up for that afternoon. <laughs> if they wouldn't, the Beatles never started recording until lunchtime or later. So we were there at like 10 o'clock in the morning and we did that and we were there for about an hour and thought, oh, this, this looks really cool. So then I kind of forgot about it for a bit and um, I took my O-levels and I did kind of okay, but not great. Okay. Uh, and I was like borderline on whether I could stay on and do A-levels. Um, 
And I thought, well, I don't know. Over the summer holidays, over August, I thought, what should I do? Should I stay? You had to go back in September and give them a decision. So uh, I wrote to a whole load of studios, including EMI. And there, there were a lot of studios around in London. Mm. I probably wrote about 20, 25 letters. And EMI wrote back the, uh, immediately and said, we'd like to bring you in for an interview. So I went in for the interview and it lasted about 10 minutes. And they asked me some crazy things about what exam, said, what O-levels did you get? And I told them, they asked me specific questions about each subject. And really some very, very short, quick interview. And three days later, I got a letter in, in the post offering me a job. <laughs> so I go back to my English master who I said, I think, you know, I've had this offer. What do you think? He said, well, you know, your chance of A-levels isn't that great. <laughs> I, I take it. And I went to my father and I said, what do you think? And he said, well, I, I can get you um, hooked up with Marks and Spencer's management course in two years time when you're 18. So if you want to do this for two years, right, go for it. Um, so I did that. And to cut the long story short, I'd been doing um, working at studios for six months. And I came out of the gate one evening at 5.30. And there was my English teacher from school because it was everything was very local. You yeah. know, the school was that close. And he asked me how I was getting on and whether everything was going well. And I, you know, just did the normal little stop and chat in the street. And then as he was saying goodbye to me, he said, well, say hello to Gus Cook for me. And Gus Cook was actually the assistant manager at the time. Oh. <laughs> and I said, how do you know Gus Cook? And he said, well, he's my next door neighbor. And uh, his wife and my wife are best of friends. And we've known each other for years. <laughs> and with that, he just winked at me and walked away. Amazing. So he, he'd clearly put a good word in for you and a bit of a, you know. It must, I mean, look, to this day, I still don't know. <laughs> I, I really don't know. But the evidence is kind of... <laughs> <laughs> oh, there must have been something about you as well. I mean, so I find I, I find that story really interesting. Um, spoke with Malcolm Toft, and he had not a dissimilar story about a quick interview and a quick turnaround in in getting into the job. It just seems to be the way that um, EMI operated at that time. Well, they they either like the look of your face or not, right? But the thing about my school teacher was he didn't want to tell me beforehand because. If I screwed up, I'd feel even worse <laughs> that I'd let him down if I knew that he'd fixed it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the other thing, which sort of plays into a, another point, is that the 
Um, the, the system that they had at the time was that they weren't interviewing anybody older than 16. Okay. Um, they weren't really interested in school qualifications. I mean, I, you know, after a, a few months there, I was assisting Jeff Emmerich, right? And he started at 16. Uh, although he was like maybe, what, f uh, five years older than I was. So it, it all goes back. Yeah. And uh, I think you've spoken to Ken Scott. I have, yeah. And he started at 16. <laughs> yeah. So um, the the crazy thing that it is, it is very like off-putting and disappointing to to young people now who, you know, have got qualifications and, you know, I understand Pro Tools and Cubase and blah, 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 and everything, they know everything at their pre-time. At the time, it didn't matter. They just wanted people that they liked the look of, um, which um, is very strange, actually, <laughs> because I, I had almost this almost like a Buddy Holly look. Okay, cool. I Buddy Holly glasses. And I look, you know, I'd wear a, a, a suit and a tie. Um, oh, he'd fit, fit right in then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so not only, that if you look at these great recordings that, that we made, um, they were engineered by nerds, 16-year-old nerds in a suit and tie. <laughs> I oh, love it. I mean, you're you're sort of renowned for for a work, you know, a strong work ethic. And yeah. I suppose that, um, I mean, did did you have a strong work ethic at school that may have, um, you know, helped you in in sort of your English teacher putting in a good word for you? Do you think? Maybe, maybe I don't. Uh, I wasn't that great at school, to be honest. But maybe I. It, what do they say? A for effort. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's something that um, I know that uh, Abbey Road do now, even still, is is write these sheets, you know, ordering um, the gear for the next day's sessions and that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I know um, I've, I've read a lot about your, you're known for the sort of making meticulous notes on, on certain, yeah. you know, things. And is that a habit that was derived from your time at Abbey Road or is that just a personal thing oh, that yeah, you enjoy definitely. doing? Yeah, I mean... Um... And I, you know, I think uh, one of the reasons that Jeff wanted me to work with him uh, on Abbey Road was that I'd, I'd worked with him on a few things in 1968, which was my first year. And um, yeah, I was like writing everything. I mean, it was one of the things just for me to learn because you mm. had a lot to learn because you were starting from a knowledge of nothing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the more notes you took and the... It, you know, just imagine like a 16, 17 year old at the time, just very nerdy and very studious. And that's the, that's the look. A so, strange, a strange <laughs> <of the things. laughs> a 16 year old nerdy buddy Holly. <laughs> um, got it. Yeah. So were you, you followed the same sort of path of starting off in the, did you, did you work in the, the mastering department first or did no, you? That, uh, that was a, um, they kind of stopped doing that by 1968. Okay. The, 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 the first thing um, was working in the tape library. 
and you'd work in and so you'd get an idea of how the tape system works and how the labeling worked and blah 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 and that, that was quite a good idea and then uh not only were you in the tape play but you're also like the runner so they'd say here uh studio two wants these tapes so there'd be like a pile of 10 tapes to take down and they said so go down and if they allow if they don't mind just stand at the back and like just be a fly on the wall okay and um see what's going on so i did that for three months and then that was september to uh christmas mm -hmm. and then after christmas i was called into the manager and he said well there's a, now an opening down for an assistant. So when you come back after the new year, you're going to um, be in the studios. So that okay. was, so I was only there for three months. And there were stories of other people who could be there anything from six months to 12 months, or even in one exceptional case, two years. Because wow. nothing, not because of their abilities, but because of lack of, onward vacancies yeah yeah so you moved i mean you were you were only an assistant for a, a couple of years if i read rightly as well you seem to move through things very quickly pretty much yeah i mean yeah yeah so yeah i was in the library for three months an assistant um i was an assistant for about um three or four years but i okay. actually started getting first engineer jobs after two years Okay. Uh, I mean, one of the things I remember, which was uh, after the um, after the Beatles um, album, is um, George Harrison was doing his solo album, All Things Must Pass, and uh, I wasn't on those sessions, but um, they they called me in, and they said. Um, and I had virtually no experience at that time of recording. I was a pretty good tape on. And they said, we need a, a rough mix of My Sweet Lord. Okay. Um, and we need it now. So go into room four, which was a mix room. Um, and they gave me a piece of paper, with some scribbled things of what to set up. So they said, take the tape of My Sweet Lord, set up these tape machines and plugged up in this fashion and phil specter will join you in about 20 minutes okay so i did that and phil specter came in and he basically in less than 10 minutes he dictated his interpretation of a mix of my sweet lord like he said, okay, put this track up, like bass and drums. And he said, okay, feed it through this tape machine with a 15-inch IPS delay on it. He said, now vary the speed, slow down the delay, and then increase the feedback on it. So basically, he told me word for word what to do. Wow. Uh, but I was doing it. He wasn't touching. There, there was a kind of thing at, in those days that the producers weren't allowed to touch any of the machines or the console. So he would just dictate this. And I'm not kidding. After 10 minutes, there was this, I mean, we, 
even back in those days, we were all all in awe of his wall of sound thing. That yeah, he did of course. Yeah. And he basically, I, I, I did one of these mixes basically being dictated every single move by Phil Sweat. I mean, he, he had such a, um, a strong formula that he, you know, it could have been anybody doing it. <laughs> that's, you know. that's, um, that's completely crazy. So what we, so you must've been early twenties at that point. Uh, yeah, probably, probably about, uh, either nineteen or twenty. Yeah. Oh, that's absolutely madness. I, I mean, I'm reading. I'm reading Phil Spector's uh, a book about Phil Spector at the minute, and uh, so the Wall of Sound is kind of pretty high in my head at the moment. And yeah, yeah th- that's like having a. It's like a masterclass in, it the, was a, in the Wall of Sound. It was a masterclass. And um, I mean, the thing is, it was it. It wasn't actually finished. Like the the big. Uh, main guitar riff at the beginning and it goes all the way through uh, wasn't on there yet so it really mm-hmm. was a, a rough mix but uh, it was certainly an experience to learn because um, working with George Martin on the Beatles wasn't quite it, it wasn't so hands his advice would be a lot more musical okay you know and concept and voicing of chords and stuff like that Okay, um, but uh, George wouldn't. Uh, he, he left the sounds more to the engineers, like Jeff. You know, uh, uh, that's really interesting. That even as you're talking about chord voicings and things, there, that's not something that I would. Um, it's not something I sort of stereotypically think about when I think about um, a sort of producer's role in in say, you know, like Beatles music or anything that George Martin worked on really. And, and uh, you know, talk about arrangements. And in my my immediate reaction to that is pulling things in and out of a mix. And um, and actually, uh, George Martin, you know, he had a clear, uh, huge background in classical music and understanding how all of that came about. So it makes complete sense that um, chord voicings and, and uh, you know, harmony would come into that. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, on... Um... Was that on the on Abbey Road on because mm. all those vocal harmonies were, were were completely joy. I mean they they called him down. I mean the thing on Abbey Road is George. Um, there was a lot of history before it started of the previous out you know of Get Back and the White Album and George not being involved in the same. Um, you know when he came back to do Abbey Road, um, it was very much. Well, I'll come in, and I'll, I'll I'll sit at the back of the room, and let me know when you want something. <laughs> and you know, sure enough, uh, you know. Whereas maybe someone else, maybe someone like Phil Spector, would have said, "Okay, do this, do this, do this, do this," right? And really, like George was, well, let me know what what you w- want me to help you with. And they would say, "George, we've got this song because," and um, help. Can you come down and help us? figure out the harmonies which of course you know he was so brilliant at yeah well yes but i but i think it actually went much you know it's difficult for me because <coughs> only starting on their last album <laughs> all the stuff that had gone before were you uh i mean obviously beatlemania had sort of 
been or was you know wasn't the sort of screaming girls necessarily at that point but how how aware of of the build up to that you know sort of trying to build in in my mind a picture of sort of a young engineer well a young engineer to be where you were assistant engineer at that point coming in and and having to work with the you know the biggest band in the world um you know how how did you sort of balance that in your head in terms of how what you knew of the Beatles back catalogue and what it you was, th- sort of coming into? It it was really scary. Hmm. The, the the thing is that you've got to understand. I mean, nowadays with um, you know computer recordings, DAWs and virtual sessions, uh, there's very little um, danger involved of of damaging stuff mm-hmm. i mean the worst you could do is wipe the hard drive but you probably got it backed up in the cloud somewhere <laughs> yeah. here it, the, the tape was on open platters without a, a, a top plate okay. and so if you spooled back too fast because there was like this variable knob that you could spool backwards or forwards uh the tape could and uh, quite often would fly off and mangle itself <sighs> right yeah uh, and when you would do like on four track, you'd do a or eight track, you'd do a punch in. When you punched in, if you if you punched in early or late, you would erase something, and that thing was erased and it was gone, and it wasn't just anything. It was a performance by one of the Beatles. <laughs> so, uh, so that it was. Um, I think there was a, a lot more um, in my mind fear of screwing up, okay, and just being overcautious for stuff. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, um, I didn't. There was a thing at the time because it, the, the job carried its like you know hazards. Um, one of my colleagues at the time. Um, uh, engineer as assistant engineer called john smith who i think worked on the white album uh he often got the punishment of like screwing up which was after the session which would be maybe two or three o'clock in the morning he got locked in the echo chamber for a couple of hours (laughs) as, as punishment and what you have to understand about studio two's echo chamber is it's actually it was built in a converted garage. So it was actually outside of the building. So there was no heating, right? (laughs) So in the winter, it would be freezing cold and damp, (laughs) damp to the point of mold. Uh, And the guys would, you know, like if he did something really stupid or bad, they'd lock him in the echo chamber. (laughs) And then... And then go back to the control room and listen to his screams on the mics. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, being, you know, 17, 18 at the time, you think, oh, no, I don't want to do anything. Not just because uh, I'd ruin a Beatles performance, but I might get locked in the echo chat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. I absolutely love that. Um, I'm really... Uh, I'm really interested to know, uh, well, a couple of things. So, as a as sort of, were you you were assistant engineering on that? Were you so were you being were you acting as tape op um, yes. on on those? Yeah. So, what was given that a lot of the album was written in the studio it must have been 
I, was it frustrating at times having to do? I mean, presumably you were you were having to do a lot, and then also just sit around a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, yeah. But compared to other sessions, I mean, other sessions, every other session was three hours long, and they were either ten to one, two to five, or seven till ten. And you'd work for, th- and then you'd know you'd do a session, and the Beatles worked on their own time scale which is we might arrive at one o'clock or two o'clock or three o'clock and then it's straight through without a break without leaving the room until three or four in the morning which was completely foreign to all the other schedules yeah so you had to really be asked and, you know, agreed to do, you know, will you work on the Beatles album? Because it isn't going to be 10 to one and two till five. Okay. So you knew what you were getting into before you you started. Yeah. Uh, And when I was asked uh, by Jeff to, to work on the album, I went to Richard Lush, who was, you know, another assistant who'd worked on Sergeant, uh, Sergeant Pepper. And I, I said, why, why, why have they asked me to do this? And, you know, Richard, who was very, very funny, you know, he said, you'll find out. <laughs> and I said, no, no, tell me, you know, why? And he said, well, partially, I mean, he said, one, Jeff likes you, but you're the new kid. <laughs> you know, and, the, you know, which was putting it mildly because not all the new kids got to work with them but it was definitely something you know that you had to uh, sign up for and agree to do and then um you know like you said you there's a lot of hanging around a lot of waiting um you know they'd start an idea for something and then another famous uh, music star would show up and it suddenly okay john you know like play them this, play them this, and you'd be playing, doing maybe two or three hours of playbacks just to entertain the visitors. (laughs) Which was more than that, because, you know, if it was somebody, you know, like Eric Clapton or Billy Preston, it'd say, oh, and, you know, do you want to add anything to it? (laughs) um, You know, um, there was a lot of hanging around. Like they say in the film business, hurry up and wait around. Yeah, that's it. So we're... I mean, it sounds like, I mean, obviously from what I've read about it and I, I'm not, um, this isn't a question sort of made to sort of uh, dressed as a gossipy thing. I've just, it sounds like the sessions were quite relaxed and presumably they were, they were fairly productive and it was, it was an enjoyable place to be, um, at that point in their career. Yeah. I mean, all the, um, I, I, when I was started in in the tape library for those few months um there were stories going on about the the white album and how it wasn't a great experience to be on so i missed all that and uh i know that i'd read later on that when they'd asked george martin to come back for this it was on the condition that they behaved themselves (laughs) so um yeah it got much much more pleasant experience than than some of the stories that have been going around. Did um, 
I mean, when you so saw like on a on a daily basis, were they quite sort of um, uh, studious in terms of just wanting to make music, or was there you know would they come in and have a chat with you about the way that you know the the day was going, or were you very much just you know ready in position, waiting for them to arrive and and sort of you know it was all yeah. work. Yes, pretty much the second. Yeah, <laughs> the, the second scenario. I mean, it was basically you. You sit there next to the tape machine, basically wait to be told what to do. Okay. I mean, as an example of jumping ahead of it, of the the whole medley, right? Yeah. Which of which there are many stories. Uh, I didn't realize. I honestly didn't realize because nobody had told me, and I maybe I didn't ask. Is all these collection of songs, which some were thirty seconds and some were a minute or a minute and a half. I didn't know what was going on. I mean, they were all on different reels and had been recorded at different times. And at no point, maybe maybe this explains the atmosphere, at no point did I say, why are we recording so many snippets of songs, <laughs> right? Because it wasn't like they were long, four minute songs that had been cut down to one. They were actually recorded as a 30 second song or a, one minute song so it didn't make any sense mm. so that's how much i didn't know that's a yeah that is, is really interesting and i mean we're, we're here so we may as well uh if you wouldn't mind sharing there's a, an interesting story about her majesty is is there not <laughs> right so um you know i explained about all these snippets have been um recorded separately at different times and then uh Towards the end of making the album, we had this uh, afternoon and early evening where uh, where we mixed, did a, uh, a stereo mix of all of these things. And then uh, everyone else left except, I think, Paul and I think George Martin, sure George Martin was there, but it was predominantly Paul who had a running order and said, okay, we're going to do some crossfades where you, you, you overlap the end of one into the beginning of the other. And they all these bits all joined together. And, you know, I go, oh, really? oh <laughs> okay. So um, we'd done the, the rough mixes and we'd done the crossfades and then we, we edited them together and it was um, my job to actually cut them together. And then about... I forget, maybe two, two o'clock in the morning, we played the whole thing through um, with Her Majesty's right in the middle. Mm-hmm. And um, Paul was like really happy with the whole thing. He said, I don't think uh, Her Majesty's works. Just, I think we should just cut it out, throw it away. Mm-hmm. Um, so the piece of tape was probably only about 20 feet long. Um, so I just cut it out. And because it was late and because it was a rough mix, uh, we didn't undo the crossfades. We just chopped it out and put it together. <coughs> and uh, I played it, I played him the edit. And uh, he said, that's fine. Send it off to Malcolm Davis and he'll cut a lacquer tomorrow morning. And he went home. And there I was left with all the 
the pieces. And this 20-foot piece of Her Majesty's was like lying on the floor. And what I should have done is really put it back in the reel that it came from. Mm -hmm. But again, explaining that just spooling backwards and forwards carried its own inherent dangers of screwing mm. up. I thought, no, it's too risky and it's too late and we're all tired. I'm just going to tag it on at the end. Because there was also, I remember there was also another procedure that said, if you have a master tape uh, as opposed to a work tape, if you have okay. a master tape and uh, that tape gets damaged, it's okay to put it at the end and said, X master not required after a length of red leader. So um, Jeff was still there and I said, I'm just going to stick this at the end because why don't we just call this tape a master? Mm -hmm. we'll, use, we'll use that rule. So I stuck it at the end after um, some red leader. I just put Her Majesty's uh, unwanted track at end of after the red leader. So that went to Malcolm the next morning, who was actually working at Apple in Savile Row. Mm -hmm. And he cut the, the Aster reference acetate. And Malcolm was like this, the same thing. I, I was very close to Malcolm, he was a good guy. And he did that, he thought, well, I'll just leave it on. Uh, so he cut, and then they came in, um, uh, they they came in the next, sorry, something just distracted me. It's okay. So they came in uh, the next lunchtime and played the acetate. And, you know, this whole thing. And it, you have to realize it was the first time that any of them had heard what Paul's vision was. Okay, so, so the complete medley together, yeah. Yeah. And because even with them, I think they were, even if they knew that it was all going to go together, they'd never actually seen how. Yeah. It was all in Paul's head of the, the running order of it, which is why he didn't want Her Majesty's in anymore. Mm -hmm. He didn't feel it worked. Uh, and then this, you know, this magical, ethereal, you know, ethereal um, vocal harmony at the end of the medley. And, you know, everybody just, the room was quiet and reflective for about 15 seconds until this thing comes crashing in. Da! <laughs> and they all burst out laughing and you know that state you know i forget whether it's paul or all of them must have been unanimous it stays in <laughs> and so what happened when the final version was done with with not rough mixes but final mixes uh they actually used the same bit of tape from ah. one of the majesties which was a rough mix that had the cut off crossfade Oh, interesting. Um, and uh, and this actually leads to another interesting point uh, because it, in my experience of working on the album, they would um, record songs over and over again. Like they'd have a, an arrangement song and George would help them with the harmonies <coughs> and the voicings and the construction of of the piece and then record it maybe record an hour and a half or two hours and 
then come in and listen to it every take, even the ones that they thought were, were, not, were just rehearsals. Wow. They would listen to everything and be very picky and say, well, and make notes, and we all made notes. And then either choose a master or edit a master or say, no, it doesn't work, but come back to it two weeks later and maybe record it at a different tempo or a different speed. Okay, interesting. But everything was very, um, like, in search of perfection. Mm -hmm. But then balanced against that was this uh, thi thing like Her Majesty's, which was a pure accident where they would just accept it like that. <laughs> you know, without any, you know, there was no polishing or perfecting of this thing. They just, oh, well, that was a, an accident. Let's keep it. Love it. It's a real, it's, it's a sort of a real juxtaposition, isn't it, of of, the, of both of those ideas. And it's, um, you know, yes. I personally see in in what I do, sort of playing drums for people, um, a search for perfection and the unwillingness to accept the happy accidents and then you see sometimes too much of the opposite way, and and it's a delicate balance that sounds like well, we all we all know the Beatles got it perfectly, but I'd, I'd never quite heard it expressed like that, and I think that's really, it's really interesting to take note of. So there we go, part one of my conversation with John Kerlander. Um, as I think I said in the, the back end of last episode, I think this might have been one of my favourite conversations to have, just because John's had such an eclectic career. You'll have to excuse, you might be able to hear my littlest girl, who is one and a half, and she's just banged her head downstairs, so she's screaming. <laughs> um, I just want to remind you that if you would like to buy a mug and support the podcast, they are beautiful enamel mugs uh, displaying our wonderful logo designed by my friend David Henshaw. You can do that. So if you visit allyouneedisdrums.com and there will be a link to the shop and they will be on the shop by the time this episode goes out. So please do that and support the podcast and help these conversations keep going. Um, so next episode will be the second part of my conversation and I hope that you guys have a fabulous couple of weeks. So, and as usual, you can contact me if you'd like through Joe at All You Need Is Drums, or you can find me on Instagram, which is at All You Need Is Drums. There's also some peeping going on outside, which is the diggers, because I'm recording this at 10 o'clock in the morning and I live on a building site. <laughs> so, anyway, that just leaves me to say a huge thank you to my good friend Joe Kane for the intro and outro music for this podcast, and David Henshaw, the mug designer extraordinaire, and uh, for supplying the artwork for, uh, every fortnight for this podcast. So I hope you have a fantastic couple of weeks and I will see you in part two. Goodbye.